0: Okay. I'm going to mute you. I forgot. I'm going to mute you all now because I don't want to talk to you because I don't want to talk to you right now. God willing, when we're done, we'll be able to talk about everything and anything. All righty. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. It's so awesome to see you all. I appreciate your uh, patience and your indulgence for the few minutes that we were delayed over there. Hold on. We're still getting the camera just right. Okay. So what we're going to cover this week, still not perfect. Hold on. Perfection is a lot harder to achieve than I imagine. Surprise, surprise. Okay, now I think I'm perfect. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, Thank you all for coming out. I want to thank each and every one of you, especially those who leave their Zoom cameras on. Those are the people about whom God says, And those who love God are like the sun coming out in all of its glory. That's all of you who leave your Zoom cameras on. For everybody else who's here on Zoom, we appreciate you and love you nonetheless. And for all of you who are watching this later, whether it be on Torah Anytime or on, uh, or if you're listening to it now, we've got it available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and Google Play and Stitcher and Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. So we want to thank you all for coming, for listening, for enjoying. I want to thank the amazing staff over at Partners Detroit, and Matthew Yehuda for enabling us to be giving all these classes. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. That's right, it's, a, it's an app. That's right, it's a website, TorahAnytime.com. And they've got, of hours of incredible Torah content that you can access by downloading straight into your cerebrum or your medulla oblongata or wherever you like to keep your Torah knowledge, because we leave that up to you. And um there will be amazing content there, um, really powerful, inspiring content coming up for Tishabov, as well as there's a site, I believe there's another site that I'll tell you more about it next week, uh, specifically for um, a broader audience. Okay, here we go. This week's Parsha is Matos and Masse. It's one of the double, double Parshas. The total count of verses in this week's Parsha is 244, because I think one of them is 132 or 131, and the other one, is, yeah, we got 112 and 132. Two Parshas, they are both combined for a very big whopping amount of tar- verses to be read in the synagogue this week. So uh, we are going to still get the same length class. It's a double part shot. We're not going to give a two-hour class. I tried that one time, and people were pelting me with virtual eggs on the Zoom screen. So uh, I stopped. And um, we are now going to try to. We're going to try to delve into one topic. It's a topic that is a complex and complicated topic, and we're going to try to like really get into it a little bit more than we usually do. The topic is the story of B'nai God, U'b'nai Ruvain, the children of God and the children of Ruvain. So let's start, we're gonna read through the Parsha itself, uh, mostly like inside and outside together. So let's get ready, here we go. We are in the book of Bamidbar, Sefer Bamidbar Parak Lamed Bays, Pasuk Aleph. Numbers 32, one, here we go. U'mikne Rab Haya levne Ruvain, God Azum Ma'od. There was lots and lots of cattle. And livestock to the children of Bnei God and Ru, the children of God and the children of Ruvain. Ma'od vast. Now remember, I just heard this idea yesterday. You know, let's say someone says this guy's so rich. How rich is that guy? You have no idea. It all depends on who's saying it, right? If my son is saying, "Oh, my daddy is so rich," it's because I, I, he has more than a hundred dollars. I remember when I found out that Pesach cost more than I was, I mean, a thousand dollars. I was—I mean, for a for a family, you know, I was a little kid. And I found out that Pesach costs more than $1,000. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. It's so much money. And it, and it, it is, but it's not that much money compared to what Pesach really costs. And it, you know, so so if my child, who in his entire piggy bank has all 17 cents that he counts and recounts lovingly and carefully from time to time, and he finds out that his daddy has more than $100, wow, my daddy is so rich, right? Okay, then you have somebody a little bit older and he thinks that, Anybody who's making a hundred thousand dollars a year is rich. Rich. If you're making six figures, this guy makes six figures. Six figures is rich. And there are people who say, no, no, no. You're not worth if your net worth is not a million dollars, you're not rich. And then there are people who come get a net worth of a million dollars and they realize. Eh, it's not all that it's cracked up to be, right? And then they say, okay, then you make a billion dollars, and you're like, eh, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. So what does it mean? When you say someone's rich, it really depends who's saying it. If Bill Gates says, that that guy is rich, you know that guy is really, really rich. But if my kid is saying it's rich, then what does it mean? Here the Torah itself, by the way, is saying about B'nai Gada B'nai Ruben. the Torah is God. God is infinitely wealthy, and it says, (laughs) I got all the Kesef, I got all the Zub, I got all the gold and silver, says the Lord. And he is really, 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 really rich. Even richer than Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and all the other Khaverim that they have in the world. And therefore, when God says someone's got lots of livestock, that's an enormous, enormous amount of livestock. So when the Torah is saying Otsum, which it means great, oh, very great. So many superlatives being used over here. We're talking about they had Amounts of livestock. Okay. But Yeru Eretz Yazer, Ves Eretz Gilad. They saw the land of Yazer and the land of Gilad, which were areas that the Jewish people had conquered from Sicho and Og. And behold, the place was a place that is good for pasture. Ruling greens, right? Beautiful, beautiful rolling greens. Just perfect for pasture. You know, I, I, I go to Montana a lot in the summer. Um, and uh, with this program called Heritage Retreats. And everywhere you go, it's not just in Montana, you see it in, in, in Idaho, you see it in, in Wyoming, and all these sort of Western, Northern, Northern Western states. Wherever you get, you wherever you gee, wherever you go, you see like, see, I'm, I'm, I'm like three or four steps ahead. What I was gonna say is wherever you go, you see. So it came out with wherever you gee. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm running at too many RPMs for my own brain over here. Like my brain is overloading and getting overheated. In any case, wherever you go out west, you just see flocks and flocks of Angus beef, right? Black Angus beef, sitting out placidly munching on the turf or whatever it is. You see a lot, a lot of that. Okay, so these are cows, and they're and they're and they're munching and they're doing their thing, right? So it's just very good land, evidently, for for ranching. Okay. So the lands of Yazer and Gilad were lands of Makom Me- Mekneh, those places for pasture. So by Yovobane, b'nei by Moshe. And the children of God and the children of Ruvain came to Moshe, Elazar a Cohen, and to Elazar the Kohen, the son of Aaron, because Aaron was already dead at this point. He had passed in the previous parshes. he'edah and they came to the leaders of the nation, saying, all of those places, and Dibon and and Nimran and 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 Baum, the land that Hashem has meet before the children of the Jewish people. It's pasture land. And we happen to have a lot of cows, we have a lot of cattle, we have a lot of grazing animals. So what do they say therefore? It's, it's a perfect, it's a it's a it's a sherah. This is this is what we call Bashar right? Everyone says, Bashert, Bashert, this is Bashert. Here we are, we've got cattle, that's cattle land. We've got, you know, uh, livestock, that's livestock land. It's Bashert. they said, in If we find favor in your eyes, You tell us, please give us this land for an inheritance. We don't want to go across the Jordan River into the land of Israel. We'll be fine over here. Now, what they're saying here is that we don't really need the land of Israel. We'll be fine over here outside of Eretz Israel, outside of the Eretz HaKodesh, outside of the Holy Land. We're going to be fine over here. So, what happens? Um, Moshe says to them, I don't understand. All your brethren are going to go into the land of Israel and fight for the conquest, they're going to have to fight off 31 kings. And you guys are just going to sit here and sit pretty while everyone else is out there in the battlefield? How dare you do this? And Moshe launches into a really, really long excoriation of B'nai Gada, B'nai Ruven, comparing them to the spies. I'm going to read it in this point in English because we're just going to try to save some time. Shall you brothers go out in battle while you settle here? Why do you dissuade the heart of the children of Israel from crossing to the land that Hashem has given them? This is what your fathers did. When I sent them from Kaddish Barnea to see the land, the spies, they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, and they dissuaded the heart of the children of Israel not to come to the land that Hashem had given them. The wrath of Hashem burned on that day, and he swore, saying, If these men who came up from Egypt, from the age of 20 and above, will see the ground that I swore to Avram Israel, and Yaakov. They have not followed me fully. They will not go forward. They will not see the land, except for Caleb, the son of Yifuna, the Kenazite, and Yoshua, the son of Nun. They followed me fully. They were the good spies. They said, we can go in and we can do it. And they were allowed in. The wrath of Hashem burned against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the end of the entire generation that did evil in the eyes of Hashem. Behold, you have risen up in the place of your fathers a society of sinful people to add more to the burning wrath of hashem against israel for if you will if they will turn away from him he will again let it rest in the in the wilderness and you will destroy the entire people so they he's ripping into them comparing them to the miraglin to the spies right and he not only does he compare them to the spies but it's it's a full-throated ripping into them and we're going to talk about he goes after them pretty dramatically and he tells them that you guys are doing something horrible like the spies. And they said, no, 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 it, it, Maybe you misunderstood Moshe, sorry. Um, I'm glad you got that all out. But th- that wasn't our plan. Our plan is pens for the flock, shall we build here for our livestock and cities for our small children. We plan on, if we settle this land, we're gonna leave our, our animals and our children over here in cities and we shall arm ourselves swiftly in the vanguard of the children of israel we're going to stand we'll we'll be the front we'll be the first troops to go in we'll fight harder than anybody so that we can get our land outside of israel over here right and we we understand that you need every man every able-bodied soldier to fight to get the land of israel and we'll fight at the vanguard we'll fight at the front of the battle as long as you're willing to give us this land outside of israel we'll fight for israel if you give us outside of israel and we will fight, we shall arm ourselves swiftly in the vanguard of the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place, and our small children will dwell in the fortified cities before the inhabitants of the land. We shall not return to our homes until the children of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance in the land of Israel, for we shall not inherit with them across uh, the Jordan and beyond. We're not going to be in Israel over there, for our inheritance has come to us on the east bank of the land of, of, of the Jordan. Okay, so now they're saying, let, let's clarify. We're, we're willing to fight. We just, we just want our land over here. And we'll fight in front of all of you. So Moshe says, okay, fine. If you do this, if you arm yourselves before Hashem for battle, and every armed man among you shall cross the Jordan before Hashem until he drives out his enemies before him, and the land shall be conquered before Hashem, and you shall return over here to your uh, families, um, and then you shall return, then you shall be vindicated from Hashem and from Israel. And this land shall be a heritage for you before Hashem. But if you don't do so, behold, you're going to be sinners. Okay, and the children of God and Reuben come to Moshe. They say, we're going to do exactly what you say. Our small children, our wives, our livestock, and all of our animals will be here in the cities of Gilad. And your servants will cross over every armed person of the legion before Hashem to do battle as my Lord speaks. And then Moshe calls on the Jewish people. He makes sure this deal is immemorialized. And then finally... We're gonna skip a few verses and finally here we go. Pastaglamakimel Bahitem Land Moshe. And Moshe gave them livnei God to the children of God, Livne Ruven the children of Ruvain, Balachis Shav and Hamasha, and for half of the tribe of As Manasha. Es Mamlach Sikon Malachamor, the kingdoms of Sikon and Og, the big giants, and their lands, Ves Divon, Vasataras, Vas Aru. So they gave. he gives them the land. Okay, now we've got a lot of questions over here. Number one, there's a lot of people who have done wrong in in the Torah. But here, Moshe is comparing them very, very openly and blatantly to the spies, specifically. Um, and he's recounting the whole story of the spies. There were many people who did wrong in the eyes of Hashem. There were the people who served the golden calf. There were the people who said, we want to go back to Egypt, right? Multiple times the people said, we want to go back to Egypt. So there's a, there's a there's a whole history of this, but specifically over here, Moshe keeps going on the story of the Miraculum and the spies, and he's hammering them up for this. Next, why does Moshe call them out at any point and say, "Are you guys out of your mind? You're asking for land outside of God's holy country." There's a whole country there that Hashem said is the eretz Asher ene Hashem halukecha ba mereshis hashanah v'achrus shana. Hashem has said this whole land is exactly what I'm looking at all year round from the beginning of the year until the end. Hashem says, where am I focusing on? What's my favorite country in the whole world? Israel. I know somebody who might be on this Zoom right now who might be said to be a fanatical fan of the Detroit Tigers. That's right. You might know who he is. And his name might rhyme with chai. In any case, so this man, he will tell you often exactly play ball, play ball. Okay. Often in the middle of the year, it will be like in the middle of winter, I'll be like 79. I'm like, what are you talking about? 79 days till opening day. that's where he lives right so that guy his eyes are in detroit baseball all year about round i remember last year when detroit was eliminated i remember if they made did they make it to the playoffs last year i don't remember they didn't make it to the playoffs it was a very disappointing end i remember it's a very very disappointing end to their season and as soon as their season was over this man says to me 212 days, like literally the day they finished their season, he's already counting down the days. I remember I used to work for Child Lifeline, it was a camp, an amazing camp sim, a camp for children with cancer. And it was an amazing, amazing, amazing camp experience. And literally, kids would leave camp, and I'm sure they do this for all kinds of camps, but this one was very, very special, and especially because of the population it worked with and the difficulties they had challenged with, and, and so on and so forth. People would literally leave camp and start counting down, like on a calendar, the days until until uh, camp was start up again. So, you know, there. Hashem says, you know what I, I, I look at all year round, Eretz Yisrael. It's the land that Akadosh Baruch says my eyes are on it from the beginning of the year until the end from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah. I just keep checking out Eretz Yisrael. I love Eretz Yisrael. I'm such a big fan of Israel. And yet here, B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruben are saying, yeah, yeah, overrated. The Holy Land, nah, eh, not so necessary. Overrated. And Moshe doesn't call them out for that at all, at all. He doesn't say, "Are you guys out of your mind? You don't want the land of Israel? You don't want Hashem's Holy Land?" You, you know, it's like it's like the early Zionists. You know, there was that whole conversation about Uganda. I'm sure you're all familiar, right? There was a, a, a serious conversation amongst the Zionists, the early Zionists, should we make a homeland for the Jewish people in Uganda? As a matter of fact, because of that, they had a special relationship with Uganda and they helped design the airport for Uganda, which is why many, many decades later, when there was a plane that was captured, hijacked in the middle of the air by a bunch of terrorists and diverted to Entebbe, Uganda, the airfield in in, in Uganda, who would have known that the Jewish people were involved in designing that airport and they were able to go in there and they had the full layout of the airport and they were able to go and make an incredible daring rescue operation called the raid on Entebbe. Thunk. But the the fact is, the reason why they had designed that airport was because the the Zionists had a very close relationship with Uganda. They were seriously considering making the land of Israel in Uganda. But Israel, Eretz Israel, the Holy Land, overrated. As long as we Jews have somewhere to park. As long as we Jews have somewhere to park. So here the, the tribe of God and Ruben come to Moshe and they make this request. We don't need the land of Israel. And Moshe's only thing that he says to them is like, well, what about the spies and you guys? They're going to dissuade people from going to the land of Israel if you're not going to be willing to fight for it. And they say, no, 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 we're going to fight. And Mush says, okay, 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 good, 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 good. If you're going to fight for it, as long as you're going to fight for it, then you're going to be clean in the eye I- to Hashem. You're going to pay your debt, so to speak, to God and to the Jewish people. And you're good. You got it. And Moshe doesn't call them out. Okay. So I think there's two things that are going on over here. And there's two different ways that we have to deal with it. And it really teaches us a lot about interacting with human beings. First of all, let's talk about biases. Okay. There's a, fr- a phrase, you may have heard it before. Phrase goes, it's such a great phrase. When you're a hammer, every problem is a nail right? I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, but when you're a hammer, every problem is a nail. So for example, if you're somebody who has a temper, then your response to every problem is just yell louder, right? That always works. (laughs) You're a hammer. It may never work, but if you're a hammer, then every problem is a nail. Everything just needs to be squelched, okay? If you are a, if you're, if you are a Person who retreats, then every problem that happens, you retreat. Okay, so that is sort of how the the you know people are. Let's let's see some examples of that. Hold on a second. Um. Okay. Let's see an example of that. The spies. The spies who went in. Now the Torah will always—it's so amazing. The Torah is so cool. Just, by the way, I'm just voting. Torah is—I'm um, voting for the Torah as <laughs> coolest book ever. Because the Torah will tell you what something is, but it won't tell you what exactly. It won't always tell you the motivations exactly. It will say kind of like more. It will just give you a little hint to it. Okay. So the Torah says by the by the spies by Yelchu by Avod they left and they came. And the Gemara tells us that what it means is, is that when they left to go spy the land, they already had the intent to slander the land. Again, when they left, they had the intention to slander the land. Okay. So we know already that they left. When they went out, they were not impartial. They were biased. What was their bias? There's different opinions. There's many different opinions on what their bias was. But according to some, their bias was that if they got into the land of Israel, they believed there would be no need for their position anymore and they would lose their job. So, when you know that if you bring the people into the land of Israel, you suddenly lose your job, you go in there and the land of Israel looks terrible. Believe it or not, the land of Israel looks terrible. There's killer giants. There's even the crops here are these massive, mutated, terrible crops. Massive, mutated, terrible crops. You could feed your family for a week on one cluster of grapes. To me, that sounds like pretty amazing. Outstanding crops. When you have the intention to go and slander, because you know that if you come back and you bring the people in, you lose your job, then every problem is going to, everything is going to be a nail. Whatever you see is going to be negative. Why? Because your goal is self-preservation as a leader And therefore, whatever you see that's not going to lead you there is going to be misinterpreted, changed, described differently, and that's what's going to happen. So you have to go in there and you have to come back and slander the land to make sure people don't give desire to go in. Okay, same thing goes with the people of God and the people of Reuben. The people of God and Reuben were highly materialistic people, right? How do we know this? Because the way the Torah describes them in the beginning of the parsha, as it opens up, it's it's amazing. By the way, in 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 Hebrew, you could say the same thing in two ways. You could say, God, which means to the children of God and the children of Ruvain, there was abundant livestock. Or you could say, "U'mikna rav, God." there was a lot of livestock to the children of Reuben and the children of God. Now notice which one the Torah puts first here. The Torah puts puts first the livestock, okay? Again, it, it, it says first that, that there was a lot of livestock. Now we know wealth, abundance to who? Children of Reuben and children, children of God. It doesn't say the children of God and the children of Reuben had lots of livestock. It says the opposite. What goes first? Money or people? Money. Which guess what? Later on, when they promise Moshe how they're going to go into the land, they're going to leave everything behind, and they're going to go into the land and conquer the land first. What do they say, right, when they say to Moshe that we're not planning that? So they say, they say, no, 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 we're going to build pens for our livestock and cities for our children. The order, right, the order, money before people, right, that's the order there. So these are people who are money before people, money, people, kind of people. And that's why the Torah, when describing them, doesn't say the children of God and the children of Reuben had a lot of livestock. It said there was a lot of livestock. That's like the first thing you see. You see money, you see physical possessions, and then it belongs to Reuben and God, next. And then they see the land and the land is, guess what? It's pasture land. When you have wealth, everything's, if, if you are a business person, then everything is a business opportunity. Like literally everything is a business opportunity. That's how you see the world. If you are if you are a father and a husband who happens to do business, then when you first see things, you see things through your lens as a father or a husband. And then secondarily, you'll see like, okay, what's the financial opportunities here? But when you're a business person, the first thing that goes is your business. And that's why the translation is There was a lot of livestock to the children of Reuben and children of God. And then what do they see when they see the land? They don't think of it in terms of spirituality, health for their families. What's the best thing for my children? Where is the best place to raise them? What is the best place to raise them be in Israel? The land that Hashem is guarding over? What is the best place to raise them be amongst all the other Jewish tribes? Nah, the most important thing is my money can be made over here. So this is where I want to live. Right Again, my money can be made over here. This is where I want to live. Regardless of whether it's it's less holy, less special, it's not Eretz Yisrael, you're not sitting amongst other tribes, you're further away from the temple, you're further away from everything. But that's the kind of person you are. When you see yourself as a business person first, and a father, and a husband second, as a Jew second, then that's what you see. All you see is economic opportunities. So the first thing, you see this land, you don't see Outside of Israel, it's not where we really want to be. We see. What do I see? I see the golden, you know, the golden Medina. We see the dollar signs, ding, 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 in the casino, like all the the money, the coins just dropping out. All the coins are dropping into the big trough. Oh, look at this place. There could be money, ching, 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 just going off. You know, you see, wow, so much financial opportunities here. And that's why they come to Moshe and they say to Moshe, they say, Moshe, we came to this land. And this is exactly what they say Ataros and Dibon Yazar and 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 and, and, and the land that Hashem has hit and destroyed, you know, taken, given us conquest before the Jewish people. Eretz Miknehi. It's a land of pasture. What do we have? We have cattle. We have livestock. No, 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 no. Hold on a second, buddy. You don't have livestock. You know you have you have children. You know you have you have wives, you know you have you have people. On on a tertiary level, you have livestock. But how do they describe themselves? I'm a cattle rancher. If you are a cattle rancher, then everything's economic opportunities. So they tell Moshe, What do we want? We want we want this land here. Forget about the land of Israel. So Moshe, here's the incredible brilliance of Moshe. And I think this is the key here. This is really a a fundamental key that we need to understand how things here are playing out on two planes, okay? There's the spoken and there's the non-spoken. You know what you can't do? You cannot give somebody else a different set of values. I cannot make you have values other than your values. I cannot. You know, let's say for example, unfortunately, a husband and wife are married. And I don't know who, but one spouse just doesn't seem to be valuing the other. The husband doesn't seem to be paying attention to his wife, doesn't notice, doesn't care. And it's deeply painful for the wife, or maybe the opposite. The husband's just trying to be a great husband and all that, and the wife just is oblivious. Now, you could say, hey, you're not valuing me enough. Hey, hey, hello? You're not valuing me enough? How many times does that work? Almost never. The calling out and saying, hey, you're not valuing me enough. That doesn't work. How do I give somebody else values? So one of the most powerful ways I can give someone else values is to let them see what values look like. And hopefully, when that person sees what other people's values are, they can learn from those other people to have different values. We know the famous Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. The famous Mishnah in Pirkei Avos tells us how Rabbi Yochanan, I believe, sent out his five students and said, go find out the proper way to go. And they came back. There was Tov. there was a good eye, a good heart, a good friend, a good neighbor, being able to see the future. One of them said shachento. One of them said a good neighbor. What does that mean, a good neighbor? What that means is, When you say a good neighbor, it means a good neighbor is someone that you see all the time. What's great about a neighbor, and this is really important, it's it's different than a friend. A a neighbor is someone you see all the time. You come in at night, you see your neighbor sitting outside with his kids, you come back and you see them in the backyard playing games. You know, if you're a person who doesn't really care much about your kids, but your neighbors a really, really good dad, and you see your neighbor playing catch with his kids, I all afternoon in the back with mitts and balls and baseballs and this and that. And then you see your neighbor always making sure to get home for dinner every night. He's always home at five o'clock. He goes back out to work, but he makes sure to be home for family dinner. And your neighbor is always being so complimentary to his wife. And so, you know, and eventually it starts to sink on you. It's not the kind of thing that you can't have somebody just take you and rip you to another area of values. You either value something or you don't value it. And values are the kind of thing that grow very, very, very slowly. The best thing you can do is be around people with good values for a long time and let it rub off. Values are a certain kind of wisdom that needs to be intrinsic. And that wisdom is something you can learn from others. The jealousy of scribes will make you wiser. But you got to be around scribes all the time to say, wow, these guys are wise They've been spending their time learning while I've been watching Netflix. I really should be like them. These guys know so much. I'm so impressed with them. And this goes for all traits. This goes for all traits. The way we increase in our in, in, in our kindness, be around kind people. That's why the Gemara says something amazing. The Gemara says, what's considered an amar? it's What's considered an ignoramus? And the Gemara goes through all kinds of different answers. This person doesn't know this. He doesn't know that. The final gemara, the final answer the gemara says is, you know what an ignoramus is? An ignoramus is somebody who may have learned a ton, but he didn't spend time around tamnideh chachamim. He was not mishamish tamnideh chachamim. He didn't spend a proper amount of time just being around greater people than him. Why is that so important? Because when you're around people that are greater than you, it sinks in. I'm telling you, I, I, I... I I love the fact that in the last five, seven years, my block has just been filling up with great people. We already had a a couple of great people, but more great people have moved in, definitely. Maybe seven, eight, nine families of great people have moved in over the last couple of years. And I'm so appreciative because I, I recognize that over time, slowly who they are rubs off on me. You can't tell somebody you're valuing me enough, value me more. You can hold somebody and shake them and, value me more, value me more. It it doesn't work. And that's why, fascinatingly, by the way, Mushar when he confronts them, he doesn't say to them, what's wrong with you? You don't value the land of Israel? Because you can't just shake somebody and make them value something differently. Now, there are practical applications here. Are you not willing to fight? That's a problem for all of us. But your value deficiencies, that's gonna be something you're gonna have to work on for a long time. And we'll get to that in a moment. And when he compares them to the Meraglin, he's comparing them number one, because the Meraglin were the same thing. Their value was they wanted their position. Their value was they wanted to stay in power. And because of that, it colored the way they looked at everything. Instead of seeing the land of Israel for the incredible blessing it was, a land gushing with streams and rivers, a land from whose mountains you can quarry copper, are called, but you're not going to be missing anything. It's got erratus uh, You're not going to eat in rations over there. It's a land of prodigious output. It's an incredible country. But you can't see that because you're biased, because you want to keep your job. So Moshe is telling the children of God and the children of Ruvain, you're like the spies. You're totally unable to see the beauty of Israel because of what you want. They wanted their positions of power. You want more money. Don't even describe yourselves. You describe them. We're people of cattle. We're people of livestock. A friend of mine recently was interviewing somebody. He said, tell me about yourself. And the guy said, he said, I'm a father and I'm a husband. Uh, Yeah, I'm a father and I'm a husband. That's what he said. He said, I can tell you about my jobs. you want to know who I am? I'm a father and a husband. Isn't that what we're working for? Isn't that what all jobs are all about? So we can be a better father and a better husband? What a beautiful perspective. What an absolutely appropriate perspective. How do the B'nai and B'nai Ruben, how do they attribute themselves? How do, how, how do they, their business card? Who are we? We are people of livestock. And because of that, all we see is economic opportunities. And because of that, when we think about how we're gonna go and march to battle and we think about leaving our families behind, the first thing we say is that we're gonna make pens to protect our animals, and then we'll make cities to protect our children. Where's our emphasis on preservation of our wealth? So Moshe cannot call them out on their value-driven mistakes because it doesn't work. So then Moshe just gets into the into the more specifics. He's hinting to them, you guys are like those Miragla. Remember those guys? They made a big mistake. They were biased too. I'm hoping you can catch it. I can't call you out directly on it, but I can show you mistakes of people who made the same mistake before you. Hopefully you can learn from them. They're like, no, no, no. We're going to do this. We're going to stay here. And then Moshe points out, because they say we're going to build pens for our animals and cities for our people. And Moshe's response, what does he say to them? By your Moshe, if you will do this, then you will be able to do. You, 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 I'll let you. Ha- I'll let it happen. But he says to them, build cities for your children. Okay, and and pens for your animals." Moshe is saying, "Okay, how about guys? Just, just, do you hear the you hear the difference between how I'm talking to you and how you're talking to me? You're telling me about wealth preservation and then family preservation. I'm talking to you, preserve your families first, please, and then your animals and then your livestock. I can't call you out for your value problems because." Whenever you call somebody out on their biases, they they can't see outside of their biases. But here's what I will do, says Moshe. I'm gonna give you a shachin tov. I'm gonna give you a good neighbor. Who's that neighbor? Half of the tribe of Menashe. Half the tribe of Menashe did not ask for this, by the way. Right, according to, there is one opinion in the Medrash that says, that Moshe said, does anybody else want some land here? And Menashe said, I'll take some, but I don't want my whole people there. But according to most opinions, they didn't ask for it at all. Moshe Rabbeinu said, "We're gonna, we're gonna put some people there with you. Some good people." The Hamak Daver, the the great work by the uh, the, nitzib, the The Hamak Dover says the reason why Moshe did that is because y- y- you have to have some Torah scholars with you. If you're all just gonna be a bunch of people who are obsessed with money, your country is gonna be a a insane place. I want to leave with you some shachin toves. I want to leave you some good neighbors. That's the tribe of Menashe. The tribe of Menashe had a lot of great Torah scholars, says the Hamigdabr. And furthermore, the tribe of Manasseh did not just see things through his own lens of what he wanted. How do we know that? Because when Yaakov gave the blessings to the children, okay, and he, he switched his hands, instead of giving Menashe with the right hand, because Menashe was the oldest, which is the way that Yosef brought his parents, his children in, and then Ephraim with the left hand, Yaakov was he changed his hands he crossed his hands and he put his right hand on the younger brother and his left hand on the older brother and Yosef complained Yosef's like father no, no no this is not how it should be and his father said no this is how it should be but you know who didn't complain Menashe because Menashe was the kind of person who says whatever God gives me is a blessing I don't need to always be thinking but I can get more I deserve more I need more whatever God gives me is an absolute blessing and I'll take it with joy and appreciation. Says Moshe, you know, I think these would be really good neighbors for you. Reuben and God, who don't want what God gives you, who think you you need more than what God wanted to give you. God wanted to give you land in in Israel, but you want more than that. You want more financial success. You want more pasture land. Mind you, by the way, think about this. They're now at the end of 40 years in the desert. Okay, this story happens after 40 years in the desert. Their pasture has, and and, sorry, their flock has been kept alive for 40 years in the desert. It's not like the desert is, you know, beautiful pasture land. The desert is not the green, rolling hills of Montana. Yet somehow Hashem had kept their animals alive for 40 years, and not only alive, but they had thriving. Oh, they had so much livestock and they kept that money all while living in the desert. And it was an animal form, right? <laughs> it's one thing if you say the guy, what, what, what did Ruben and God do? Ruben and God were diamond merchants, okay? So they, they had a lot of wealth and diamonds, whatever it is. So okay, fine, you can could, you could trade diamonds in the desert like you could trade diamonds in, in a field in Kansas, like you could trade diamonds in, in, in a port in India. But if your business is livestock, that's one type of business you cannot do in a desert. It doesn't work. Right? You cannot have livestock growing in a desert. But Hashem had made incredible miracles for them. And during their 40 years in the desert, not only did their livestock stay alive, but their livestock thrived. But now we're going in, we say the land of Israel, which is Hashem's beautiful land, the one that he cares about. I don't know if it's gonna work out for me. Right. So Moshe says we, we need to put some you guys need some help. So there's a story and there's a sub-story. The story on the front is it's about whether or not you're gonna convince people not to go into the land of Israel. On the front, and as long as you say, okay, you're willing to promise to send soldiers, then you're okay. Again, there's the there's the top level story. The top level story is. We want here, Moshe's complaint is, but you're not going to give us soldiers. It's going to be a problem militarily, to which they say, okay, we'll send military soldiers, to which Moshe says, okay. That's what's going on on the surface. On the surface level, what you're able to see is that story. Below the surface, the story is entirely different. Below the surface, the story is one of values. It's of people who see themselves as animals first, or, or business first, People second, as the way the Torah describes them. Rav, gad, ruven. Animals first, people second. It's the way they describe what they're planning on doing to preserve their families and their wealth. When they go in to go fight in Israel for many, many years, the first thing they're worried about is making pens for their animals and then uh, build cities for their people. And that's why on that level, on the sub-level, Moshe is subtly hinting to them. Guys, how about you build cities for your people first? And then it pens for your animal. And they're like, ah, yeah, I hear you. And then you know what Moshe says? Even more than that, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you with some really, really good people here. The tribe of Manasseh, The tribe that doesn't complain about what he gets, even though he feels like he's getting less than he really deserves. He's not worried about counting his blessings because he knows that he's in the hands of God and God can bless him again and again and again and again and again. Unlimited unlimited blessings. You guys need that shachin tov. The Gemara tells you that when a rabbi goes into exile, sorry, sorry, a student goes into exile and in the Torah there's a concept of going into exile. It's called Ari Mikla. The Gemara tells us that if a person goes into Ari Mikla then his Rebbe has to go into Ari Miklat with him. If, if a person by mistake kills somebody and ends up getting sent off to exile, you send his Rebbe with him because he's supposed to be able to thrive in the Ari Miklat. How can someone thrive without his role models there? So we literally send his Rebbe into the city of refuge so he can thrive. You need people around you to inspire you, you need those kind of people. You need people who have a different perspective of the world than you. You know, there's a a famous story about a, there was a Jewish person, a businessman who was very successful. And eventually he sold his business in America and he moved to Bnei which is a city filled with Torah and Eretz Yastroh. And when he moved there, you know, he started, he, he sold his business and his goal was, I want to sit and learn Torah. But he was very, 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 very wealthy. He didn't, he wasn't like very ostentatious. There was one thing that he was a little bit ostentatious about. He liked to drive nice new American cars. Right now, in Israel, you don't really see a lot of American cars, right? You see mostly German, Japanese. You don't see, you know, to see like a, a Chevrolet, you know, a GMC. A, you know, I remember in the olden days, I used to live in Harnoff. and there was a guy whose father owned like a big Chevy Caprice classic from like 70 late 70s vintage, you know, and it, we used to drive it around. It was like it was such a bizarre sight because most cars were like these more small European Japanese cars. And here this guy was driving on a big, fat American boat, you know. So this person, this very, very wealthy guy, he moved to Israel, gave up his business, sold his business, sitting and learning all day. The one thing he liked to do is buy himself a new American car every year, you know, get rid of the old one, buy a new one. Nice, beautiful American car but his wife was really uncomfortable because they lived in the city of Bnei and a lot of people in the city of Bnei are incredibly, incredibly impoverished and they're sacrificing tremendously to learn Torah. This, you know, she felt uncomfortable with her husband driving this big, beautiful, brand new American car. So she pushed back a lot. She pushed back on her husband and he pushed back at her and there's back and forth finally and said, you know what? Go, let's go ask Reb Chaim, okay? So Rav Chaim today is considered to be you know, the, the sort of the leader of Torah Jewry, this goes back already 20 years ago, it was a long time ago so he wasn't the only great one, but they, they knew him, that had a relationship with him and they said let's go ask Reb Chaim so he sits down with Reb Chaim this the man, the husband and he says, uh, my great Torah master Morenu, my, my, my teacher, my master says, my wife and I are having a little bit of a, a disagreement and um, we're coming to you. I, I, I want your advice and your guidance. Sure. Okay. What, what's going on? He says, every year, you know, I, I was very successful as a businessman in America. I sold my whole business and I sit and learn all day right now. I sit and learn well uh, My one little desire for my old days left over is that I like to drive a nice, beautiful, new American car. I like the smell of the new leather. It only lasts about a year or so. I actually just yesterday spilled... Coffee. I started making my coffee black a couple uh, weeks ago I started trying to go to black coffee because my coffee was filled with Splenda and flavored all kinds of junk and I decided that I want to be a little bit more healthy so I started moving to black coffee and yesterday I had a cup of black coffee and somehow it just like filled so Thank God, black coffee doesn't spoil, right? It doesn't go bad because it's just it's just coffee, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't go bad. But if I had milk and creamer in there, that stuff is much, breaks down in a much more smelly way. But my car smells like coffee right now, I'm intensely like coffee. If anybody has any suggestions for how to get rid of that, I think the problem is that my seats have perforations and the coffee got into my seats. So I got sucked into the, it. it's not like I can just clean it off. You know, when you have like a leather seat, you can usually clean it off, but here all the, the seats have these little perforations The coffee got in the perforation in my car. So if you have any recommendations, please tell me. But in the meantime, the bottom line is, I didn't get to the story. Oh yeah, big car, nice car. I want an American car, good smell, fresh leather. So he goes to Rav Chaim Kanievsky. And he says, Rabbi, you know, what should we do? My wife says I'm causing a lot of jealousy. I shouldn't do it. I say, it's the only pleasure I really have left of physical pleasures. I've given up a lot. I just want my new American cars. So Rav Chaim Kanievsky looks at him and says, tell me, um, did you ever finish Shas? Have you ever finished the Talmud? Man says, No. I don't. Did you ever finish half of Shas? Did you ever finish half of the Talmud? Man says, mm, not, mm, not really. He's all right. Tell me which Masechta, which tractate do you know well enough that I could t- test you on it right now? A- a- any tractate. The man says, uh, not, mm, not really any of that. I'm like, I'm just, there's not a single tractate in the entire Talmud. Some of them are very short. Some are, you know, 30 folios, you know, double-sided folios, 28 double-sided folios. There's not a single tractate in the entire Talmud that I could test you on that you know well, that you're well-versed in. The man says, no, not really. The kind of asking, he says, don't worry, nobody's jealous of you. Nobody's jealous of you. Now, again, Rav Chaim Kenecki clearly had nothing to be jealous of this man. Rav Chaim Kineski, the man who sat and learned Torah all day, every day for 70, 80 years. But the point is, Rav Chaim Kineski's outlook on the world was one which, if you don't have Torah, there's nothing to be jealous of you. Having people around that, it's the kind of thing where those kind of values can't be shaken into you. You have to be around it. You have to experience it. You can't be told, you should value Torah more than cars. But when you hear somebody in innocence believing that if you don't have any Torah, why would anybody here be jealous of you because you have a car? Being around that kind of person is what changes your perspective slowly. And that's why it's so important. If Let's say you you have spouses. They're not getting along. They're not valuing each other. You can't shake it into one another. But maybe what you could do is really kind of encourage your spouse to spend more time around good people, to see what good people look like, to see what good people, how they live their lives. It's so incredibly important. Good values can't be shaken into you, but they can be inculcated over time by the company that you keep. So Moshe is in such brilliant wisdom, he doesn't try to shake them and say, why don't you value Eretz Yisrael? Because you can't shake values into a people. But what he does do is says, let me give you Menashe right over here. He's a great, great tribe who's super appreciative and thankful and recognize that whatever God gives me is the greatest blessings for me. Let him sit just amongst you, right in it, right smack in the middle there. Spend some time around your neighbor. I think that will make you into a better person. Having a shachin tov, again, and this is the the, the meaning in Pirkei Elvis, where there's so much value given to a good neighbor. Having a good neighbor makes you a better person. You're a cantankerous person. Every morning, you come shuffling out of your house to pick up your your, your newspaper and you're grumbling already. "Ah, What's on the news today? World's going up. Across the street, you have a neighbor who's just cheerful. As you're going to pick up your newspaper and grumble about what's going on in the world, he's like, hey, hey, yeah, I know, whatever. Do you see what's going on in the news? Like, yeah, I'll do the news. Yeah, have a good day, I'm heading out. Gotta go learn. And the next day that happens, and the next day that happens, and the next day that happens. And slowly you become, through osmosis, a better person. Shachin Tov, having a good neighbor, the reason why one of the great scholars says this is what it's all about is because you get the value by choosing to live in that neighborhood. That's where you get the value. After that, the value starts to accrue on its own. from You see happy people. And think about in your life, by the way. I'm talking to you right now. like Everyone who's listening to this right now, think about who are the happiest people in your life. And just try to spend more time around them. Try to be more like them. Minasha is so happy with whatever he has. No complaints. He's being passed over. He's not getting what he's supposed to get, his birthright. No complaints. I'm just so blessed. I'm so happy. I've been given so much. Versus all the rhetoric. They're not giving me enough this, and they, they owe me this, and they owe me this. B'nai God to B'nai Rubin, you guys see money before people? Spend some time around Minasha. They see everything as blessings from God and feel overwhelmed with his kindness. So that is the message. There's two levels of this story. There's the level that's above ground, the level that we can talk about. Above ground, they say, we want this land. Moshe says, but how are you gonna be able to leave everybody else to go conquest without you? They need your soldiers. They say, we'll give you the soldiers. And Moshe says, okay, fine, then you're good. That's the above ground story. An issue of manpower and logistics and it's settled below the ground all the subtle hints that are going on the fact that the torah opens up the parsha with animals before people the fact that the torah points out to you that they have so much cattle and then therefore suddenly this land is pasture land they don't look at it as Non-Eretz Yisrael land. They don't view it as non-Eretz Yisrael land. They're so biased by their money desires that they don't see this as this is Chutzla'ar. that's Eretz Yisrael. That's where I want to be. That's God's holy land. That's what He's watching over from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. But that's what happens when you're a money person before a people person. And then they come to Moshe and they. They make their demands, and Moshe reams them out, comparing them to the Meraglim. Why to the Meraglim? Because the Meraglim also were hammers. The Meraglim were also biased. They wanted their positions of leadership, and because of that, they saw the beautiful Eretz Yisrael as a terrible place. The same way you want your wealth and your wealth preservation, and that's why you see Eretz Yisrael as an undesirable place, and you want to stay out here in the money lands. He's subtly comparing them to the Meraglim because he's trying to give them this message, and he's subtly telling them build pens for your build cities for your people before pens for your cattle. He's trying to send them the message. And lastly, he says, "I'm going to give you B'nai Asha to be your teachers, to be a shachin to teach you not to be so focused on your money, but to be focused on being thankful for all the gifts that are in your life." So. The idea I wanna leave us all with is that God willing, we should number one, make sure we have good people around us. Number two, look at the values of the people around us and understand what drives their life. The people who we see are happiest in this world, what drives their decision-making process? What are they driven by? And try to get those values in because values take a long time to build. Values can't be shaken into us. They need to be built slowly. So let's try to get those values in there. And God willing, the more we spend time around shenim tovim, good neighbors, people will inspire us, the more we'll be inspired to be people before money people, to be Judaism and inspiration and Torah before finances people. And our world will flourish with the joy and beauty of a world driven by the Dvar Hashem, the word of Hashem. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for being awesome.